I think it's appropriate, actually, that we're doing this series in July, seeing as how we just celebrated the 4th of July. Again, this holiday that reminds us that we are one nation, this holiday in which we are to celebrate, yes, our freedoms, but also those values that we hold in common, what makes us Americans. And yet, when we look at the news today, what we find is that our country is indeed a divided country. Divided along political lines, but not simply divided in the political sphere, but we see how those divisions have bled over into almost every other area of life, into our common life together, into our social spaces and our schools, our places of work and our homes. In fact, the Pew Research Group, doing some, a longitudinal study of Americans' political attitudes, found some dramatic changes have taken place just over the past decade. In surveying over 10,000 American adults, what they found is that in 1994, most Americans were what we would call moderates. That means that the majority of Americans, though they may have had a leaning more toward the left or to the right politically, more toward Democrat or Republican, most of them, on the vast majority of their values, found overlap and agreement, found places in which they could talk to people across the aisle, work with people across the aisle, acknowledge that though they may have different strategies, we all face common problems. And as a result, it's important that we work together to address those common problems for the common good. And yet, when the Pew Research Group did this uh, study again in 2014, what they found is that the, the, the map has shifted dramatically. That those who are considered political moderates are now in the minority, they're at the political fringes, and the vast majority of Americans not only identify with one of the two major political parties, but does so in a way that they actually uh, resist and, and, do, and don't want to work with people from the other side. In summarizing their findings, this is what they said. They said, partisan animosity has increased substantially over the same period. In each party, the share with a highly negative view of the opposing party has more than doubled since 1994. Most of these intense partisans believe the opposing party's policies are so misguided that they threaten the nation's well-being. That was actually a question on the survey. Ideological silos are now common on both the left and the right. Liberals and conservatives disagree over where they want to live, the kind of people they want to live around, and even whom they would welcome into their families. That is how divided we have become as a nation. And so the question for us here at Trinity this morning is what role is the church supposed to play in all of this? When we say the Pledge of Allegiance and we state that we are one nation under God, what does that even mean? Not only for us as a country, but for those of us who call ourselves people of faith. Well, that is really what we're going to be talking about over the course of this series. That's really what we're going to be diving into and wrestling with, is what is our role when we try to think about politics from a Christian perspective, when we try to examine it through a biblical lens and, and understand the heart of God when it comes to politics and government, what is that and how does that shape and affect not just our attitudes but our actions? That's what we're going to be spending the next several weeks talking about, but because it is such a divisive topic. Because it is a topic that, that really does divide not just Americans but the church. 
I think it's only right that we begin not only this message, but this series in an attitude of prayer. So would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Lord God, we give you thanks that you have indeed set aside this time and this space for us to meet with you. And especially as we're tackling such a difficult topic, a topic that elicits such strong emotions, such deep anger and resentment, such overwhelming mistrust. Lord, we ask that you would give us your heart. That Jesus, you who prayed for unity within your church, that you would bind our hearts together as one as we look at this topic through the lens of your word. So God, guide us. Give us open hearts and minds to receive the message you have for us. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You know, when I think about this question, what role does the church what role is the church supposed to play in all of this? What role is the church supposed to play in terms of politics and government? I can't help but think of a quote that I came across several years ago from George Washington's farewell address. When he was talking to the nation about why he was not pursuing a third term, why he felt it was important to hand off leadership, he had some parting words for the citizens of this country. He said this, he says, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion, and morality are indispensable supports. First president of the United States, a man who is the general of our army, said that one of the things that religion can bring to the forefront when it comes to politics and government is the ability to guide it. Washington and John Adams and many of the other founders actually believed that our democracy didn't work unless people of faith were involved, unless people of faith were the ones who were establishing the rhythm, who were building bridges of cooperation. And yet when I look at the church today, what I see is that the church is just as divided politically as the rest of our society. In fact, in a research, uh, a research study of American churches, a study called American Grace, Robert Putnam, uh, did, uh, a sociologist, looked at the political attitudes of the church, and what he found is that you could actually divide denominations based upon what political party they affiliated with. And that over and above theological considerations, most people would actually leave or join a church based upon the perceived political leadings of the pastor than whether or not they agreed with his theology. And as I said, and I actually step back and I think about my own experience in the church, I've seen that to be true. That I have friends who are a part of a denomination where I would overwhelmingly say, yeah, that's a denomination that definitely leans Democrat. And then when I think about our own denomination, do you want to know among LCMS Lutherans that are surveyed where our denomination overwhelmingly tends to fall? Republican. And in fact, if you look at uh, just the church's uh, participation in the political process, we find silly things like this all over the internet and on social media. Things like Jesus rode a donkey or an elephant carrying a cross. A candidate for political office holding up a sign that says Christian conservatives for Trump. People at rallies saying Jesus doesn't build walls. When I look at the church, what I see in the church is that we are just as divided as the culture and the society around us. 
That rather than being bridge builders who set the pace and the tone for the dialogue, too often what we do is we pick a side, we camp out there, and we shut our ears to anyone who might have a different opinion. The danger in all of this is that I fear that we are losing our role and our identity within one of the most important national conversations taking place. And I will be honest, as a non-Christian, one of the things that turned me off the most when I thought about the church and its participation in our society was the politicking that I found in most churches regardless of which side of the spectrum they landed on. To this day, I have friends who lose their minds when they see people with crosses marching in political rallies, no matter what the color is on the banner. So the question is, what do we do? What is our posture supposed to be? And I think, honestly, one of the best places to go, one of the places that is truly worth examining, is Jesus' words in his Sermon on the Mount. The reason why I think these are so important is because in the Sermon on the Mount, what we find is we find Jesus' own declaration of what it means to be a citizen in his kingdom. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, we see Jesus defining what it means to be his disciple, how his people are to live, how they are to act, how they are to think, and how they are meant to interact with one another. And so it's for that reason that I think the best place to begin as we are wrestling with this very subject as people of faith is to go there and to take a look at it together. So if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open up with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And again, you can also grab the pew Bible that's uh, in the back of the pew in front of you. You can open that as well. If you don't have a Bible of your own, I want to invite you, go ahead and take the pew Bible. Let that be our church's gift to you because we want you studying Scripture together with us. But Matthew chapter 5 specifically, I want to look at a very important verse. Matthew chapter 5 verse 9. Jesus opens his Sermon on the Mount talking about those who are blessed in the kingdom of God. And he says this in verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Other translations say they shall be called children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Now, oftentimes, I think that this is an important verse for us to look at with this subject, but oftentimes I think that we as Americans, we don't really have a very robust understanding of this word peace. We tend to think of peace as the absence of conflict, which is part of the reason why when it comes to religion and politics, that's the one thing you're not supposed to talk about at the dinner table, right? Because we want to have a peaceful meal We don't want to have the debates and the arguments that we see between Fox News and MSNBC, at least not over Turkey. That can happen afterwards when the kids are in bed. But this understanding of peace is not what I think Jesus had in mind when he thought about peace. And the reason why is because Jesus was a Hebrew. He was a Jewish man. And their understanding of the word peace was far deeper, far more holistic, and far more robust than this idea of simply the absence of conflict. You see, for Jewish people, this word for peace is the word shalom. 
And what peace means is something far deeper than absence. It actually means a fullness, a wholeness, or a completeness. Actually, the New Bible Dictionary puts it this way. It says that that shalom means completeness, soundness, and well-being. And that when you look at the whole of Scripture and how it's used, it is used when one asks of or prays for the welfare of another. When one is in harmony or in concord with another person. When one seeks the good of a city or a country. Such peace is the associate of righteousness and truth, but not of wickedness. That when Jesus said peace, what he was talking about was a world that operates exactly the way God intended it to. A world that operated according to the principles of the kingdom of God. A place place of wholeness. A place of harmony. A place of abundance where everyone's needs are met. Where people don't simply not argue, but they embrace one another in a community of love and encouragement. Uh, A community in which they pursue justice together. Justice not just for some, but justice for all. That is what shalom means. That's what peace was all about to Hebrew people. And when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, what he's saying is he's saying, blessed are those who work for this kind of peace in the world. The Greek word is actually to be a doer of peace. Someone who brings shalom wherever they go. And as I think about that for a second, I think right there, even if I were to pause the sermon right at this one point, I think we have enough to begin to understand what it means for us as Christians to step into a politically divided country. Because the first question that we need to ask ourselves is, what does it mean for me to be a shalom bringer here? A doer of peace here? Someone who doesn't simply just buy into the fight, but looks at the whole thing and says, what would it really look like to pursue justice for all? What is required of our entire community together in order to build bridges? What would it look like for us to uphold truth, whether or not it's politically expedient? What does it mean for us to pursue harmony and to actually get to know our neighbor and their perspective? before I shout them down with my own policy or position. We could stop right there. But what I love is the fact that this verse comes within the context of a much broader passage. The whole of the Beatitudes, which I think paint a beautiful picture of the posture that we are to take. And it's worth studying a little bit more closely. I love that the other things we find in the Beatitudes is where he says, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Now, again, I think we have a problem with this word meekness. I think that when we think of meekness, we think of somebody who's shy, who's soft-spoken, who doesn't want to get involved or create waves. But that's actually not what the word means. The word in Greek can actually mean those who are gentle. It actually has a connotation of someone who is able to wield power but restrains from doing so. I actually love what the editors of the ESV Study Bible say about this word. People who are meek are those who do not assert themselves over others in order to further their own agendas and their own strength. I want to read that again. Listen to this. This is what it means to be a meek 
person. They are those who do not assert themselves over others in order to further their own agendas in their own strength. Meek people are people of power, but who wield that power with gentleness and with humility. The best image I can think of this is actually a male lion watching over his cubs. I don't know if you have ever seen like those BBC or Discovery Channel or National Geographic like uh, documentaries on lions. The male lion's job from the moment he reaches maturity is essentially to defend his pride. He doesn't hunt. What he does is he fights. He spends his entire life defending their territory. The only time that he snarls or bears his claws is when he is having to face off against an enemy in the defense of his home. And when he does so, he's absolutely terrifying in battle. I would never want to meet a lion on the savanna. And yet, the other job that he has is he watches over the kids. And to watch a male lion play with his cubs is one of the meekest things I can imagine. One who has incredible strength and power, deep ferocity, and yet wields it with a gentleness in the defense of those who are weaker. That's what it means to be meek. Jesus says, blessed are the meek. They are the ones who will inherit the earth. Another beatitude I think worth studying is blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Again, we get this word wrong. We think that righteousness means that we have to follow a bunch of arbitrary rules. But that's not what righteousness means at its very heart. To be righteous is to pursue justice. The word righteousness throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament means justice. When they talk about God being a God of righteousness who judges the world in righteousness, what they mean is that God judges the world justly. He pursues justice for everyone. He pleads the case of those who can't plead their own case. He upholds the rule of law. He punishes the wicked. He punishes those who exploit those who have no power. To pursue justice is, again, a reflection of that shalom, that kingdom where wickedness and evil, where crime and human exploitation are no more. Jesus is saying, if you hunger and you thirst for that kind of righteousness, then my kingdom is the place that you want to be, for God is a God of justice. But I love how he then follows that up. He also says, but blessed also are the merciful. That although we might pursue justice and justice for all, we also do so with an attitude of mercy looking for ways in which we can extend grace and forgiveness to those who have done us wrong. It says, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Another thing that I think worth reflecting on is where he says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. To be pure in heart, according to the biblical understanding, is to have clarity and focus, to have purity of intention, Those who are pure in heart don't look for politically expedient means by which to advance their own agendas. In all things, we pursue integrity with a clarity of focus on the kingdom of God. 
People who are pure in heart don't simply settle for the lesser of two evils or the evil of two lessers. In all things, they pursue what they believe God is calling to. They look for the best, and when they don't find it, they call it out. To be pure in heart is to be single-mindedly focused on the kingdom of God. And to say that is what we are pursuing, that is what we desire to live out in our world. Together, these Beatitudes paint a beautiful picture of what it means for us to step into a divided country. They show us what our heart should be, what our posture should be, how our words should be phrased, what actions we should take. And so practically, if we think practically for just a moment about what it means to step into our divided world with this kind of beatitude approach, I think before you do anything, whether it's entering into a political conversation or posting on social media, when you're thinking about what candidate you should vote for, I want you to apply the Sermon uh, Sermon on the Mount test. I would love it if Christians before they took any political action, actually sat down with the Beatitudes and said, does the decision that I'm about to make reflect the values of the kingdom that Jesus calls me to? For example, before you post, repost that meme on, uh, on social media, before you decide to share that article from that particularly inflammatory columnist that you just love, I want you to ask the question, does this really build bridges? Does this really open the door for dialogue? Does this actually help us to pursue shalom, even with the people that I don't agree with? I think that our participation on social media would radically change. I would hope that Christians applying the Sermon on the Mount test would never again share a political meme, but would rather learn to ask better questions and to start different kinds of dialogues. What about this? When suddenly you have that opportunity to talk about a political issue, maybe rather than talking, we actually listened first. We asked the other person, why does this issue matter so much to you? What difference do you think it will make in our world? And after listening, only then sharing our own thoughts. But not so in a way that that demeans or condemns, but simply says, these are the values that I believe we should be pursuing, and this is the way I think we can move forward. And where there's common ground, you take it. You fight for it. You ask the question, can we build a bridge here rather than another wall? But more than that, I think when we think about our political activism, that we get involved in causes that pursue justice, that bring mercy, that advance the cause of truth. Whether that means getting involved in your local community to serve their needs. Whether it means getting involved in local government in order to be a voice. Whether it means taking advantage of your opportunity to vote. Asking the question, is the candidate that I'm about to vote for, do they reflect these values or not? And if they don't, is there someone better? This is what it means for us to apply the Sermon on the Mount test. Because I think doing so is reflective of what it means to be a person of faith, not according to my definition, according to Jesus' definition. 
Before I wrap, though, I think I want us to focus on one more thing going back to verse 9. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I want to pause for a second and ask the question, what did it take for Jesus to make us children of God? What was the price of peace for him? What was the cost that he was willing to pay? What we see is the cost that Jesus was willing to pay was everything. That his pursuit of peace with us cost him his glory, cost him his reputation, cost him his friends, cost him his power, cost him his comfort, and yet he did it anyway. Because he believed that shalom was worth pursuing on the earth. That in order to have true peace on earth, what it meant was that he would have to die even for those who rejected him. That he would have to put their well-being above his own. Jesus was willing to pay the price for all the selfish ways in which we've engaged in this world, politically or otherwise. He did so at great cost to himself because peace was worth pursuing. To pursue this kind of peace in the world is difficult. It's hard. It will involve sacrifice and great cost. But what I love is the fact that Jesus has already paid everything for us. That even in those moments when it's difficult and uncomfortable, we can know that our God loves us and that he's working with us. Actually, over the course of the series, we're going to look at the ways in which God is actively at work in our world, practical ways in which we understand the relationship between church and state and the kingdom of God and all of that. But what we need to remember is that this pursuing of peace, this building of peace, while difficult, is done because the God of peace has already made peace with us. I realize I don't need to defend myself. I don't need to defend my rights. I don't even need to defend my life because I have everything given to me already in the God who loves me. It allows me to step into these conversations with his heart and mindset and not my own. If that is the price Jesus was willing to pay to make peace with us, why would I settle for anything less? That's really what it means to, I think, pursue what God is calling us to. And so I think it's only right that as we launch into this series, as we think about our posture, that we actually close this message by praying a prayer together. This is a prayer that's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, and I think it beautifully reflects what our attitude should be in a world of division. So what I'd like to ask is that you read this prayer out loud with me. Let's pray together. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. Grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen.